0: welcome to enhanced therapy podcast my name is derek Davde and i'm here with a uk psychiatrist ben sessa and we're here to talk about mdma assisted psychotherapy for alcohol addictions hi ben hello hi thank you very much for inviting me i'm very pleased to be here today I'm very happy that you found time to do this. I I imagine you're a very busy man. I see you present at nearly every psychedelic assisted therapy conference that I go to. You do research, you publish books, you publish academic articles in academic journals. You're also a clinician. So you're both a psychiatrist and uh, an MDMA trained psychotherapist. And now you're building a clinic in Bristol, so there's a lot we could talk about. Could you just briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and and your journey towards the the MDMA-assisted and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies? Sure thing, yes. So, I'm a medical doctor trained in medicine and surgery, then I
1: specialized in mental health and then child and adolescent mental health. And um, I was I was aware of psychedelics since my teenage years. And as I went through med school and then went through my medical training and psychiatry training, um, it became increasingly apparent to me that that whole aspect of the medical education curriculum of psychedelics was just not there. I I knew that a lot of work had been done in the 50s and 60s, um, but then it just all disappeared. So um, 2004, I wrote a paper which became the first published paper on psychedelics in the British medical press since the 60s. Then I started attending conferences, and it was a very small field back then. Started writing more editorials and journals. Then got involved with uh, Robin Carhart-Harris and David Nutt, because they were in Bristol when I was there. And um, took part in the the UK's first psychedelic study since the 60s, in which David Nutt injected me with psilocybin. um, And I became the first person to legally take a psychedelic for over 40 Mm. years in the UK. And then um, followed on with further imperial research. I joined the group there, um, taking part in in studies with LSD and psilocybin and DMT and ketamine. And then about five years ago, got funding to do my own study um, with MDMA. Um, for alcoholism. And at that point, we were really keen to, you know, everyone was doing work with PTSD. Um, All all the research clinically was coming out of MAPS, who were sponsoring the MDMA PTSD work, and we wanted to do something different. I was working in adult addictions at the time. So I've always seen um, addictions as essentially PTSD plus compound. Um, So it was clear that high levels of trauma. And we knew that MDMA worked for trauma-based disorders like PTSD, um, but no one had ever done an MDMA study on an addiction before. So it was the world's first MDMA study for addictions. And I think that the thing that's driven me most throughout my career in in, in moving towards psychedelics is um, not only my interest in the whole field and the pharmacology of it and the culture surrounding it, but also just the realization that current traditional treatments in psychiatry are not meeting the needs of our patients, especially with long-term chronic trauma-based disorders such as PTSD or addictions. Uh, Very poor outcomes in terms of uh, clinical efficacy for traditional treatments. And um, yeah, it's the plight of my patients that has driven me to move towards MDMA, Um, which I really see as the most effective and innovative piece of new psychopharmacology of
0: the last 75 years. So it's an exciting time. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So you're a pioneer in both the psychedelic field in general, and now you're pioneering the use of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for alcohol use disorders, so for alcohol addictions. Uh, Could you... So, you know, I would love, if we have time to dig deeper into... uh, is a bunch of things that you just said, but could you give us an overview of of what's going on, what's going on with that particular research, with the research as you mentioned, most MDMA assisted therapy research has been done for for PTSD. That's where the the approvals will be coming in, and and you doing it with uh, with alcohol, and so your assumption, first of all, I hear is that most addictions are trauma-based. So that's the assumptions that you're working on. And if you could tell us a little bit about that and, and tell us about the studies and maybe compare those results to the extent that you can. This is all new preliminary research, but to the extent that you can compare those results to what you know with more traditional healing methods. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, the thing about addictions, is, which is what you learn very quickly in addictions, addictions are nothing to do with drugs, Okay, that's a real red herring. The people in addiction services, which are around about 2% of the population, are primarily trauma-based problems you know we can all take different drugs even even nasty drugs like heroin and crack cocaine there's this kind of narrative that if you use heroin or crack cocaine once you die and become immediately addicted it's not true most people take most drugs most of the time benignly um, whether it's alcohol cannabis lsd magic mushrooms you even heroin or cocaine Mm -hmm. Um, those people who find themselves in addiction services with long-term physical and mental health issues are primarily people with pre-existing mental health difficulties unstable social backgrounds racism exclusion unemployment poor housing poverty those are the factors that turn a person into an addict and this is very well known within addictions so um now of course our, our drug laws and the way they're set up don't really do that they point the finger at the drug as if it's the drug that if we were to ban the drug addictions would go away um it's it's an absurd approach that doesn't work um and so yeah this this led us to see the high levels of trauma in in our patients with alcoholism and we knew about the work going on with MDMA and PTSD um and as i said we saw that there was a link there and we could do an MDMA for PTSD uh, MDMA for alcoholism study so the study we did was a open label safety and tolerability study so it was uh no control group no placebo um, they all got MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. They all knew they got MDMA, and we all knew they got MDMA. Now, that might make you ask, well, that's not a very methodologically sound study, but that's what you have to do. When you use a new drug in a new condition for the first time, you have to start with an open-label safety and tolerability study. That's step one. So,
0: that's phase one in, in drug approval research approach.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah. It, it's, it's, you have to do that. Yeah. Um, and so we, we carried that out in Bristol, um on 14 patients with alcohol use disorder. Um, they had an eight-week course of MDMA assisted psychotherapy, which consisted of two sessions with MDMA, in which they took at each session initially 125 milligrams, followed two hours later by 62.5 milligrams, half that dose. Um, and they did that on two occasions spaced several weeks apart. And then we followed them up at three, six, and nine months. Um, to collect the outcome data. Now, our primary outcomes, given it was a safety and tolerability study, were not drinking behaviour. That would be an efficacy study. So our primary outcomes were was anyone harmed? Mm -hmm. Did anyone die? Did they have abnormal ECGs? Did they have abnormal bloods? Did they tolerate the treatment? What did they think of it from a qualitative point of view? How did it compare to other treatments? So those are all the primary outcomes. And those results were spectacular. Uh, No adverse events, no suicides, no abnormal moods. Um, uh, Very, very, very positive outcomes in terms of safety and tolerability. Now, secondarily we looked at drinking behavior obviously and what we found was uh compared to the current best treatments for alcoholism the mdma those those people that went through the mdma treatment uh, fared very very much better um well actually i can say better than that it blows out of the water the current best treatments for alcohol use disorder now we didn't have a a comparison group that were randomized for this study, because as I said, it was open label. But what we did before we did the MDMA study, we did an observational study using all the same inclusion and exclusion criteria um, to act as a treatment as usual comparison. We took 12 people from Bristol who were undergoing a detox for alcohol. Um, We used all the same inclusion and exclusion criteria and all the same outcome measures. And then they underwent their detox. They came down to zero um, in terms of alcohol units per week, which is what happens after a detox. Then without any intervention from us, we then followed them up at three, six, and nine months. Now, this cohort of people went through all the very best gold standard um, traditional treatments, treatment. AA, um, AA, map groups, one-to-one therapy, group therapy, rehab, uh, detox, uh, rehabs, um, anti craving drugs all of the very best that modern medicine can throw at the alcoholic and at nine months seventy two percent of that sample had returned seventy five percent sorry had returned to the pre detox levels of drinking now very sad outcome, just as we expected that 's what we see very high rates of relapse seventy five percent were where they were were where they were at the beginning of detox now with the MDMA group. had returned to pre-detox levels of drinking. Now that's a staggering result, 75% versus 20%. And as I said, statistically, we can't compare these two groups because they were different studies. But in terms of that cohort that went through MDMA, compared to what they would have got if they'd just been through the normal treatment, it it absolutely
0: is a staggering result. So we were very pleased indeed. Right. So that's the, the that's the future you obviously are setting up more studies to 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 have a more rigorous, methodologically rigorous research with a proper control group and all that. So whatever you're saying right now are amazing results. This is all preliminary. Uh, But there's a huge promise, and this seems to be the story of MDMA-assisted therapy uh, for trauma, exactly the same story. You can see the same results with way more uh, methodologically rigorous approach, which you you are the first sort of stage of that research. Um, So we, as you mentioned before, we might have something uh, somewhat revolutionary in terms of mental health treatment on our hands. You are a psychiatrist, uh, could you tell us a little bit about m d m a as a substance itself how it works uh biochemically how it works neurologically how it works phenomenologically how what's the experience of the m d m a and and from that, how do you understand personally the healing power of m d m a
1: yeah um, so MDMA, 3,4-methylindioxymethamphetamine, is a quite remarkable molecule. It um, has some mild psychedelic properties like classical psychedelics, but we're not talking the same level of ego dissolution and um, perceptual distortions that you get with classical drugs such as LSD or psilocybin or DMT, but mildly enough to think outside the box and see things in a new light. Um, and it's, it's receptor profiles really mirror how it works from a site as a psychotherapeutic agent. So um, it, it increases activity. You have increased activity at alpha one and two receptors, which um, result in a relaxation, um, which is good because that takes the edge off the hypervigilance that goes with tra- painful trauma recall. Um, and then paradoxically at the same time, there's an effect via dopamine and noradrenaline, which, um paradoxically speeds the patient up if you like that's the sort of amphetamine part of the molecule um and so these two these two things are happening at the same time both relaxation and speeding up and anyone who's taken the the recreational drug ecstasy might be familiar with that peculiar sensation of being both speeded up and slowed down at the same time and what that does is it puts the patient into this optimal arousal zone for psychotherapy um But the main effect is uh, via the serotonin receptors Um, and via uh, serotonin 5-HT1A and 1B receptors. That's the sort of positively felt mood, the euphoric um, ecstasy type experience. Um, And there's a mild effect via the 5-HT2A receptors, which are where the uh, classic drugs like LSD and psilocybin act. Um, but as I said, not nearly as intense as you get with the classics. And then finally, it has a hormonal effect. It raises levels of a, a hormone called oxytocin, which, as you know, is the, the hormone released from the brains of breastfeeding mothers, um, which engenders and fosters a sense of empathy and bonding. So when you add these things all all up together, positively felt mood, euphoria, reduction in depression and anxiety... Mild motivation um, via the amphetamine stimulation with paradoxical relaxation via the alpha two um, stimulation, plus the hormonal effects on gender on, on, on uh, to it that fosters and engenders bonding and empathy. what you get um, and the nicest sentence I like that sums up MDMA is it selectively inhibits the fear response but leaves the other faculties intact. and what the way it does this is by inhibiting the fear response, Um, this is the switching off of the amygdala and the amygdala is that part of the brain that responds to fear. And that's the real barrier to, um, uh, psychotherapy for people with trauma, because they just don't want to go there to those painful memories. And we see in traditional psychotherapy all the time, they can work for weeks, months, years with their therapist. And then they hit this brick wall where the therapist is like, you know, let's talk about your childhood rape. And they just can't go further. They experience dissociation. They drop out of treatment. They go back to the vodka. And this is why we see such high levels of relapse. What MDMA does so uniquely pharmacologically is to switch off this fear response for a few precious, valuable hours that allows the patient to then do the psychotherapy
0: and overcome that barrier. Right. And plus, uh, plus there's a little bit of an afterglow that uh, people like Gould and a neuroscientist at uh, Johns Hopkins are studying that, for example, in terms of levels of oxytocin, there is an increase in the levels of oxytocin for up to an estimated month afterwards, which again allows uh, some of the processing of trauma.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, absolutely.
1: And I think to understand the mode of action of MDMA and how it's used in psychotherapy or to understand trauma or addiction itself, you have to have a good understanding of developmental psychology and particularly child abuse and maltreatment. Right. And so my training as a child and adolescent psychiatrist set me up well for this. Um, and like you say, um, PTSD, even addictions can almost be seen as the sign of a healthy brain mm-hmm. you know this is a child mm-hmm. finding a way to survive its childhood it's um you know if uh, it, it all comes back to attachment theory um you it's, it's almost a design fault in the human brain i often think of the attachment relationship the attachment relationship the um, is based on modeling and experience and it kind of in a flawed way has the assumption that your primary caregiver is going to care for you and love you and protect you and feed you and clothe you now if your primary caregiver beats and kicks and burns and rapes you it's a healthy neuroadaptive response exactly. to develop an intense fear reaction exactly. and every time you hear that key in the front door you dive behind the sofa and and that's a good sign of a healthy brain it's keeping you alive through childhood um, now, the difficulty is that as you move out of childhood into adolescence and then adulthood, and you're no longer being subjected to assault, um, you have a sort of brain hangover, whereas your where your brain is left in this state mm-hmm. of hypervigilance and fear, and that hugely impairs your functioning, impairs your ability to make and maintain um, intimate relationships, and naturally leads to addiction. Um, you know, I often say to my patients with addiction, with heroin or alcohol, I say, look, Who can blame you for for this? You know, I I don't like pain. If I was in pain, I'd take a painkiller. I don't want to be in pain. And the best painkillers on the block are vodka and heroin. I wouldn't bother with any of these others. And who can blame you? And so when we do work with addictions and we encourage the patient to give up their painkiller, their alcohol, their heroin, uh, why would they? I wouldn't want to. Um, So you really need to think of psychedelic therapy in this context as totally resetting rebooting, defragging the brain and tackling those rigid narratives that maintain this state of fear. Um, And that really does require going right back to early childhood experiences. Um, Now, of course, traditional psychotherapy can often and often does effectively do that you work with your therapist you go through your painful trauma memories you learn how to relax and slowly extinguish that fear response and that's great and that works for about 50% of people especially when combined with SSRIs for some people but it's a significant half that just do not respond and that's why disorders like PTSD have a 50% treatment resistance and become lifelong and that's why addictions are very very difficult to tackle because why would they give up that the soothing medicine. the soothing
0: um, the soothing medicine yeah. and yes. what
1: mdma does is it gives you those few, those few brief hours and it's quite remarkable seeing the look on patients faces as they're sitting there in their 30s 40s 50s yeah. having never been there to that memory of that night when they were eight years old and they've tried they've been in and out of rehab they've been in and out of hospital they've been sectioned they've taken every psychiatric drug that's been given to them but they've never been able to talk about that night when they were eight years old and on mdma it's it's amazing to see the look on their faces but they say wow i can talk about this i'm going to tell you all about it this happened he came into the room okay. with the, and they and they're staggered at their own ability to do it and because they've have their amygdala switched off for right. those few brief hours and the really crucial thing about this is the work they do in that state then lasts they don't have to stay high they've done the work they've done the psychotherapy they've made the resolutions they've wor- worked through it and the next day um, they, they've made those changes. And I often ask a patient, I think, And I think the important thing is that it's so selective that it just switches off the fear response, but the other faculties are intact. That's a Mm -hmm. really important quality. Mm -hmm. You know, many drugs turn off the fear response. A a bottle of vodka turns off the fear response. A bag of heroin turns off the fear response. But those are messy drugs. You can't do any work on those drugs. You can't remember and reflect and debate and talk things through. And you certainly won't, won't remember the next day. So I always ask patients the next day after the MDMA, you know, you, you spoke for eight hours yesterday about your trauma. Do you, do you remember any of it? Was it all just gobbledygook? Were you just high? And they always say, I remember every moment every clear, clear as a bell. So it, it really works. It provides this platform for psychotherapy right. by turning off the fear
0: response. And that really is the holy grail, for that's, trauma-focused psychotherapy. That's... And that's wonderful. And I, I want to stay just, you know, there's so many, so many places I want to go with you. You know, it's very exciting the way you speak about, about this fear response hypothesis is a kind of cast. And this is the main hypothesis around uh, how MDMA works. And, and there is no dis- discussion. This is, this is, this is the right hypothesis. Um it's cast in a little bit of an individualistic terms. I'm very interested in relationship therapy, MDMA for uh, for relationships. So there's this other hypothesis which is based on the the oxytocin and the reopening of the critical period for social bonding. So again, oxytocin levels are high when you're young. They get, they get lower when you're older so from the relational point of view you develop your main relational patterns early on in your in your life and then you can keep repeating yourself and if you have unhealthy relational patterns then unfortunately you you will be harming yourself because you won't be able to create as you mentioned these healthy relationships and then the oxytocin, when it reopens that window, it actually brings us back in some way to, to when we were open to forming new ways of relating. And then from that, we can, we can actually, within the MDMA experience and post-MDMA experience, develop healthier pattern of relating. And, and then we can change uh, more profoundly than we could without that reopening. Again, the work by Gould Dolan that I'm sure you're familiar with uh, on oxytocin. And uh, is there some way of sort of adding that component a little bit in a stronger way? Because there are very strong practical implications for that. For example, I just throw one more thing at you and uh, and I'll let you respond. Uh, For example, nearly all uh, DSM... Uh, diagnosis are individual diagnosis and there is some sort of a code for relationship dysfunction but but shouldn't we have a code for relational diagnosis so then we can actually yeah
1: i mean i think i'm one of those sorts of psychiatrists that's really not that wedded to categorical diagnoses um and i think that our diagnostic manuals are I mean, we have to use them because in order to get drug approvals and in order to categorize patients and collect outcomes, we have to use these diagnoses. But one thing I often say um, at conferences is, you know, I've been a psychiatrist for over 25 years and I've never met a patient with depression or anxiety Right. Or personality disorder, or schizophrenia, or eating disorders, or addictions, um, which is obviously a crazy thing to say because I've met thousands of patients, but nobody fits into these boxes. These are, and we 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 make them more and more um, uh, nuanced. But uh, all these, all of my patients are personal, individualized, idiosyncratic bundles of issues that don't fit into boxes. And it's not just their cognitive state. It's where they live. It's their their, their their training, Their their parenting, their experience of childhood, whether they were bullied, whether they have any money, whether they're homeless, whether they have a job, whether they have any hope, whether they have transgenerational lack of hope, you know, all of these things. And I think that's really important that I do think that psychedelics are helping the psychiatric profession to redraw its battle lines about, around categorical diagnoses because the psychedelics they they really encourage you to break down those barriers sure. of, of, of categorical diagnosis so but going back to the first part of your question you know i i'm also not particularly wedded to any particular psychological models and it's not either or it's both and So Mm -hmm. we have to look at everything from the biological, the psychological and the social. And I think good psychiatrists do work in this way. It's quite interesting speaking to colleagues in America because I think psychiatrists in the States have quite a negative um, There's quite a negative um, narrative surrounding them that they just all they do is give out drugs. I mean, that's certainly not been my experience of psychiatry. Um, I was trained very much in the social sciences and the psychotherapies and the psychological therapies. And I think this is again where psychedelics are really tackling the last 50 years of this top down biological model. You can't be a good psychiatrist if you're not interested in where your patient lives and whether they work and what their relationship with their children and families are. You, there's no question that you can give a ton of Prozac. It ain't going to work if you don't also help that patient to get a job and improve their relationships. So good psychiatry has always been holistic. And right. psychedelics really, um, and particularly MDMA, they really encourage that holistic way of working. So we need to tackle these things from all right. angles
0: what what would be your opinion then on on the pharma, uh, pharmaceutical com, uh, industry and SSRIs and SNRIs versus you know MDMA and and psychedelics which you take once twice maybe three times and you're done what what do you think there will be resistance do you think there will be a you know uh, that industry has a lot of money and uh, it sort of creates the ways the ways we think in some way through uh, their own advertising, et cetera. So what's your your thinking around SSRIs and SNRIs and all that stuff?
1: Um, I think that it's not just psychedelics. I think the whole biological model is being criticised anyway. Psychedelics are adding fuel to that fire by saying, look, there are other psychopharmacological options, for example, combining drugs with psychotherapy for drug-assisted therapies. But I think that 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 argument against pure biological psychiatry has been coming for a long time anyway. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not of the sort of conspiracy theory group that would say there's no role for for medicines in psychiatry. Of course, there are. There is a role. Um, but the effect sizes are relatively small compared to placebo. And it's certainly the case that SSRIs, et cetera, have been massively overprescribed. There are certainly cases of severe to moderate depression that respond well to ssRIs in the short term, but the vast majority of people sitting on SSRIs or sNRIs don't have severe to moderate depression they have mild to moderate at the most, and they just are taking them day in day out to mask their symptoms. Um, an analogy I often use there is um, you know so these these maintenance drugs are symptomatic, so if you're presenting with a trauma based disorder one of your symptoms could be low mood. Great. Put them on an antidepressant. Another symptom, poor sleep. Great. Put them on a hypnotic. Another symptom, my mood goes up and down. Great. Put them on a mood stabilizer. Another symptom, my hypervigilance at times becomes mildly paranoid. Great. Put them on an antipsychotic. So you've got all of these different drugs of different classes that treat the symptoms, not the cause. Now, the analogy I use is that of infections. If you have an infection due to a bug, a microorganism, one of the symptoms of that is a fever, a high temperature. Now, you can take a drug like paracetamol or ibuprofen or aspirin that will bring your temperature down. It'll make you feel a bit better. Sure, that's a good thing to do. If your temperature comes down, you'll feel a bit better. But those drugs are not antibiotics. They're not going to kill the bug that causes the infection. And when we treat these chronic trauma-based disorders with daily maintenance drugs that only treat the symptoms. It's like just taking ibuprofen every day instead of a, 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 an antibiotic. Or it's like, it's like breaking your leg. And rather than going to the orthopedic surgeon and getting it fixed, you just take painkillers and walk around on a broken leg. That's kind of what we're doing when we treat patients long-term with these maintenance drugs and what the psychedelics do and what mdma does is it actually is the antibiotic it gets to the heart of the trauma that's causing the infection as opposed to just treating the high temperature and that allows you like you said to come off the other long-term maintenance drugs and going back to your question about the pharma industry absolutely this is a marketing nightmare for pharma Um, pharma and pharma is based on the fact that you have to take these drugs every day for decades to hold back the tide of symptoms, but never actually mm-hmm. cure the patient. Now, I think that psychiatry's dug itself into a corner here. Um, it's, it's outrageous, the, the, the outcomes that we, that we have in psychiatry. We've given up hope. We, we, we behave as if we're palliative care doctors. We, we, don't, we don't even use the cure word. The cure word is a sort of dirty word in psychiatry. We, you know, we don't expect to cure you. We expect to just be alongside you for life. Now, I don't think that's good enough. I think psychiatry can do better. I want to be... Like the orthopedic surgeons. I want to have a patient come into my clinic in their 20s with a history of PTSD or addictions. I want to cure them, kick them out and never have them darken my doors again. Why not? Now, psychiatrists have given up hope that we can be like that. But I believe we can. And I believe that psychedelic therapies are the best innovative piece of pharmacology in combination with therapy that we've had in 100 years of modern psychiatry. So it really is ushering in a whole new
0: way and certainly a whole new sense of hope for the medical profession. Excellent. You know, you speak with such clarity. Obviously, you've been thinking about these things for a long time. So I really enjoy talking to you, Ben. Uh, Tell me, um, how do we not screw this up? Uh, what are the main ethical issues you know this is the beginning of uh, a potentially um, mental health revolution tell me what's what's what are you worried about how do we do it right uh, okay that's
1: that's a great question how do we not screw that up well firstly and i often get asked this someone asked me at a conference recently ben are you worried about the over medicalization of psychedelics my answer was no i'm worried about the under medicalization of psychedelics right we we um there's a lot of kickback at the moment from some of the entrenched parts of the psychedelic community who are saying things like you know get your hands off our sacred molecules these are being given to us by the plant yeah. spirits you know we don't need you doctors in, the, in your white coats well and and, and, they, and their fear is that by medicalizing psychedelics we're somehow gonna make them more exclusive and harder to get. Now that's absurd. It's the current situation that's exclusive. If you if you can afford to spend five grand and go down to Peru and have ayahuasca, or go to some underground in, um therapy ceremony in in a yurt or teepee, that's great. But you know, it's 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 a very white middle class westernized thing to do, and huge numbers of patients who could benefit are currently excluded because these are not approved medicines. So. We have to make them approved medicines. That's the number one thing. And in order to do that, we have to jump through the hoops that are required by the regulatory authorities. There's no two ways about it. I mean, for all of the the beautiful aspects of the sacredness of psychedelics, as far as MHRA, FDA, EMA are concerned lsd is no different from paracetamol or penicillin it's just a drug you've got to go through the hoops you've got to do the research it's got to be safe it's got to be efficacious then it will be approved so in a way all of that all of that beautiful culture and don't don't get me wrong i do love that beautiful culture it doesn't help the situation that we have to do the basic same pharmacology studies as we would for any other drug and By saying, uh, I I, I don't like the cognitive liberty argument, you know, it's my right to get high. Well, great. You know, the hippies have been saying that for 75 years and it's got absolutely nowhere. You know, that's not what makes regulatory authorities change their minds around drugs. they, They change their minds around drugs when you jump through the hoops and you carry out the research. So what do we need to do? We need to get the data in. We need to do the research. We need to work with the authorities we have we can't work against them it doesn't matter how beautiful and sacred these these compounds may be historically that doesn't mean a thing when it comes to regulation we've just got to do the drug research um now the other big question that this this asks is you know what about the whole concept of corporatization and finance and money and profit and i think absolutely there's lessons to be learned about not not making the same mistakes that big pharma have made in the past. and actually, if you look at the psychedelic community now, the research community, it's it, it really is um, a cottage industry. You know, it's not big pharma that are running this. It's small startups. It's um, people who, like myself, who've been in the research field for 15, 20 years, um, people with personal psychedelic experience, people who really want to do this for patients. But we can't get away from the fact that in order to do this, you need money. And this yeah. requires banks, And it requires investors and we're talking large sums of money. Human psychopharmacology research is very expensive. It costs around a hundred million dollars to get a compound from the chemist's laboratory to the doctor's prescription pad. And there's just no, no getting away from that. Now, MAPS have managed to do this very well through charitable donations and philanthropy, but that's a, that's a one-off example. If we're going to get these other drugs approved, we need big money, and that requires corporations, and that requires investment, and it requires banks. And so I think a lot of the, a lot of the people who are concerned about this just simply don't understand the realities
0: of drug development yeah. and what it costs. So then you're building a clinic in Bristol how do you consider the the whole issue of access this therapy is very expensive there's three people involved there's an 8 hours 7 hours 6 hour long sessions for the dosing sessions etc how do you in your how do you sort these issues yeah. of access um
1: Well, it's a a great question. So, well, firstly, we're more than just building a clinic in Bristol. So I'm Chief Medical Officer of Awaken Life Sciences, and we are building 15 to 20 clinics throughout the UK and Europe in the next few years. We're going to be the high street presence of psychedelic therapies. Um, There's lots of companies that are developing new molecules or developing new approvals, but very few who are building physical bricks and mortar clinics. So we, we really want to be the high street presence where you go to get your MDMA, your psilocybin, right. your ketamine therapy. Now, in terms of pricing, yeah. I mean, I, got, I was asked this on a call earlier today. Why isn't this on the NHS? Well, I, there is nothing I would like more than this to be on the NHS and this to be free and publicly funded by governments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm I'm a socialist. I'm a, a keen supporter of the NHS. Now, but the difficulty is that's a question you need to ask the NHS, not me. When are you going to pull your finger out mm-hmm. and pay for this? Now, the bottom line is it, it costs money, like you say, and it costs six thousand pounds to do our ketamine th- psychedelic therapy course and that's what it costs because that's what it costs for the medicine the building the therapist the approvals and everything else now i don't care who pays that 6000 pounds i really don't i don't care whether it's the nhs the nice the mhra um booper axa insurance companies or the rich patient with six grand in their pockets i don't care who pays but it's got to be paid and i will do all i can to work creatively with insurance companies i will supply the nhs with safety data and efficacy data to expedite that decision. But that's that's up to the governments to decide to fund this. Um and but it what we can't do is wait for them to pull their finger out. I'm not gonna it might take the NHS five, 10, 15 years to decide to fund psychedelic therapies for free public health care. I'm not gonna wait 10, 15 years before opening my right, clinic. Okay. Uh, I want to provide the platform. So um, I hope that it's going to come sooner rather than later. And I also think that the data will speak for itself. It makes economic sense to provide treatments that work um, rather than have patients becoming long-term chronic psychiatric patients. So let's hope that governments make the right decision. And in the meantime, there's, there's going to be places like Awaken
0: where they can get their treatments. Right. Yeah, again, you have a, a very clear position on this. I appreciate that. In terms of regulatory landscape and, and training, uh, how do you see the future? How, where is it going? Do you think that the regulators within specific professions will uh, will just regulate this? Will there be some 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 other regulatory situation? And uh, also, how about the training for three different therapists? There is a prescribing doctor, there is a therapist one, and there is a therapist two.
1: Yeah, So in terms of regulations, well, it'll be on a drug by drug basis, by which drugs go through their phase one, two, three. Um, of of drug development and become approved as indications for particular psychiatric in, uh treatments for particular psychiatric indications and the approvals that the drugs will then be legal and there will be um there will be specific prescribing ties to these drugs i don't see mdma ever being a take home drug you're not going to be able to go to your gp and come out with a box of mdma tablets it will be only it can only be prescribed and delivered under set protocols in a particular setting by particular trained people now that's not that unusual there's a lot of drugs like that you don't go into your gp and come out with a box of cancer chemotherapy tablets and take them at home you could only have cancer chemotherapy delivered in a certain setting by certain trained protocols so that's not unusual and i think it's important that mdma has that tie to it in order to maintain safety and efficacy um in terms of training yeah it's um we we we, like many other
0: groups how about regulating uh the therapy itself if there's it's an interdisciplinary kind of team
1: yeah, it's it's a really good question. And, you know, there's a lot of groups around the world who are now offering therapy training for psychedelic clinicians. But the truth is, and some of them are really, really expensive. Truth is, there is no gold standard for what is a psychedelic therapist. There is no official standard. So lots of different groups are kind of coming up with psychedelic therapy training schemes. Um, and they're all slightly similar, and they all they've all got differences. But the bottom line is, um, up till now, you can only, you could only really train as a psychedelic therapist if you had a research project to run. Um, so I'm an approved MDMA therapist, and I'm an approved psilocybin therapist, having been through those those trainings with both MAPS and Compass Pathways. Um, and I, I did that training because I had studies to do with those groups. Now, of course, there's lots of places that are now offering psychedelic therapy. I think the most important thing going forward is that, in my opinion... This should be restricted to people who are already clinicians. That's very important. A lot of people contact me and they say, Ben, I want to be a psychedelic therapist. And I'm like, why? And they're, oh, because I love taking LSD. And it's like, that is not a reason to be a psychedelic therapist. You should say, because I love working with depressed patients, because I am a nurse, I am a psychologist, I am a doctor, I'm a social worker. I've spent Mm -hmm. years working with trauma and children in hospital wards, police stations, playgrounds. And so I see psychedelic therapy as a specialist bolt-on to a person who's already an established clinician. It's really important that we can't just take somebody who's not a clinician and has no regulatory approval as a clinician, give them three weeks of training, and they go off and call themselves a clinician. Um, You know, you're working with people with severe mental health problems, often very vulnerable, often with sexual trauma going back to childhood. You can't just do a three-week course in brain surgery and call yourself a brain surgeon. So similarly, psychedelic therapy training, in my opinion, should be reserved for people who are already experienced clinicians, and then they add psychedelics as a specialism.
0: But it would make sense for even in terms of access to have slightly different levels of training for those three people. Obviously, the prescribing doctor might need a little bit more uh, experience in that. But uh, but then there's also therapist number one who is kind of considered the primary therapist. Uh, maybe would require higher qualifications and higher training than the therapist number two that, uh, you know, is yeah. there for the safety reasons and...
1: Yeah, and um, and you know that's the model that maps are using with their their, their phase three studies going forward. Um, obviously, the doctor has to be a medical doctor and has to be yes. regulated under all the all the correct agencies. Yeah. Um, and then, indeed, the model you describe is is a, is a really in, interesting one that one of yeah. the therapists can be more experienced and the other one can be somebody who's a trainee. So there's lots of different models of doing it
0: do you do you okay so if we just, we are we're kind of coming uh, closer to the end i have some uh, more general questions for you. actually i do have a a couple of uh, very specific questions that i haven 't asked you what what are the the counter indicators for mdma assisted therapy at this point um
1: well p- pretty typical to most psychopharmacology studies are are contraindications or exclusion factors for things like severe liver disease severe renal disease severe cardiac disease um psychosis, a personal history of schizophrenia or bipolar one, um, addiction to other drugs other than alcohol or nicotine in our, in, in the study we had pregnancy, breastfeeding. Um, our study was conducted on people between 18 and 65 years old. So not, no children and no elderly. And those are all pretty standard pharmacology contraindications. There's a few other specific ones. Like we, we didn't want people in our study who were heavy users of ecstasy, um, and then there's certain certain medicines that you'd have to come off if you're already taking those, okay. if taking MDMA. And the main reason for that was that is that, so for example, the SSRIs, they reduce the efficacy of MDMA if you're on an SSRI. So there were quite yeah. a lot of, uh, there's quite a, a lot, lot of restrictions. Yeah. yeah, a lot of preparation. But that's pretty typical for pharmacology research. Um, yeah. You know, one of the interesting things about the research is you need to be well ill people or ill well people just the right Right. amount of illness but not too much and enough wellness too so research is different to when we once get approval and we can start using these drugs clinically outside of research protocols
0: so another another issue that people talk about uh, that is related to business actually because people want to, you know, some companies want to capitalize on on uh, the emergence of these therapies is that, you know, there's no money in the in the medication here because like, as we said, there's one, two, three times use and that's it. So you can't make money on MDMA. So the only way to make money for businesses here is on, on therapy. So then, so what I noticed people are trying to do is they're trying to... Uh, create specific product therapy protocols and use MDMA with these specific therapy protocols. And then they trying to, uh, uh, to make these protocols, to, to sell these protocols. MAPS has a different approach. MAPS has a very client-focused, client-led approach to therapy where are you at with this issue of client-led therapy versus specific therapeutic protocols well what we're doing at the
1: moment is we're now submitting protocols to do as going back to the beginning of our conversation randomized control studies with placebo groups and of course you have to have a very specific research protocol when for research um when it comes to delivering clinical protocols outside of research you know, I think I, I, I'm, I'm very much for um, affiliation rather than competition. I'm very much for sharing. Um, it's, it's what we do in medicine. We, we, if we come up with something that works, we shout it from the rooftops and tell everyone to do it, do it the same way. Um, I think the other point that you raise here is just the importance of putting the patient at the centre of their care plan. Right. Um, and this goes back to what we were saying about the diagnostic categories. Um, we're not you know, it at Awaken, what we're doing is all the patients write their own bespoke care plans. They lead us. We don't tell them what to do. Of course, we have to have some framework around our protocols in the way we use psychedelics. But um if patients never get better if you tell them what to do. You've got to be alongside them while you while they tell you what they want and need. Because in all my right. years working clinically, I've I've always thought that patients always know what they want and need. They just haven't found right. the language to say it. So It's important that patients are able to construct their own bespoke care plans that work for them Um, and also that it is multidisciplinary and holistic and involves all those other things. So I think we're seeing a lot of creative stuff around integration. We're seeing things like Pilates and yoga and breath work um all sorts of lifestyle change there's no point in carrying out mental health care if it doesn't result in positive behavioral change i often yep. say this to patients at the beginning of a psychotherapy course i said look i'm not going to sit here take your money off you for a year just to make you a highly enlightened lonely person you've got to get out there our endpoints our functional endpoints should be goals like work relationships child care health not just how they feel but what do they do, and how are they functioning? And if we focus on those endpoints and allow patients to drive us to those endpoints, we're more
0: likely to succeed. Okay, uh, quick, uh, quick question. Public messaging, most effective public messaging. This is confusing for some people. Here's alcohol. Here's MDMA. You say use one drug and to drop the other. What's going on? You know, some people don't understand that. What's the most important public messages?
1: Well, I mean, that sort of argument is so weak because that just basically betrays any kind of understanding of pharmacology or indeed public health. Um, You know, there are very few things a person can do that's worse for them than drink a bottle of vodka a day. There's certainly no medical intervention of any kind that's worse than a bottle of vodka a day. So if you need to use a drug like MDMA on two or three occasions to get you off that bottle of vodka a day, just it's a no brainer that from a tox- toxicity point of view, is absolutely okay. validated. So the, the public message really needs to be about whole reform of the Misuse of Drugs Act and drug prohibition, because it's the current situation is unpoliceable, unethical, um, unscientific and mm-hmm horribly, horribly dangerous Horrible. for young people and for people in general. Um, and hopefully that's all coming down. So I think a big public message needs to be a complete political rewriting of our approach to compounds um, and changes to the law that don't criminalize people but allow access to research and effective treatments.
0: Okay, a big job, a big job. <laughs> I, I have a hippie question for you. Oh, cool. A hippie question is, do you, do you think that psychedelics might have a role in making this world a better place and saving the ecological crisis, making us all more connected, all that? Great question.
1: Well, I think, firstly, no single thing is going to solve that. Um, the human society and the terrible hole it's dug itself into is so complex that there's no single magic wand, and it's certainly not psychedelics any more than anything else, and we need to attack the ecological problem and humanity's abyss um, with everything we've got. Um, Absolutely. On a personal and individual level, we see this, and this is well recognized in research protocols, that psychedelics provide personal meaning and meaningful lifestyle and personality change for individuals. Now, if you could scale that up to the whole of the population, then it's a very good argument that this could be a positive thing. There's been some great research recently about increased nature um appreciation after psychedelics and all the work mm. out of Johns Hopkins around personality yeah. change. So yeah, on an individual level, that seems to be the case. How that would work up on a scaled-up system, I'm not sure. One of the things we need to avoid, because this is what killed the research in the 60s, is this kind of idea that, oh, if we just all drop LSD, we'll all live in chemical utopia and the world will be saved. The world is way more complex than that. Um, so and that sort of messianic message Ended uh-huh. up destroying the, the the movement in the sixties. So we uh-huh. need to get away from that. But on the on the on the other hand, when you're in such dire straits as we are, we need to be creative and and imaginative about what our options are. So absolutely, psychedelics should be up there being discussed at the United Nations as a potential tool alongside all sorts
0: of other things. Sounds great. I have one last question, and if you have anything to add. So, in general, what are you most excited about? What are you most worried about?
1: I, I'm most excited about seeing increased access through medicalization of these compounds, which allows people who normally wouldn't want to and ought not to break the law in order to get treatment to come forward and go through the normal medical channels through their GP and have regulated, approved medical treatments with psychedelics and MDMA. So that's what excites me the most. And I think that's what's happening. What I'm most worried about is that it won't, it it won't, that, that political persuasions from the top down will block this and that there won't be a positive media message that promotes it, um, I don't think that will happen. I'm incredibly optimistic. It's been a very long journey to get this far. Um, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since the so-called psychedelic 60s. Um, indeed, we talk about the psychedelic 60s. Today is way more psychedelic than we were back then. Far more mm-hmm. people take psychedelics today. Okay. There's far better community cohesion. There's psychedelic clubs and groups and societies, conferences and festivals in, in, in a much larger scale than there ever was in the 60s. So I think we need to shed this idea of the psychedelic 60s. Now is the psychedelic time. And those people who are coming into the field as young people, I really encourage that. It's a most beautiful field to work in. It's so multidisciplinary. We don't just need doctors, nurses, clinics, therapists. We need chemists. We need botanists. We need lawyers. We need architects. We need musicians. We need huge. It, the psychedelics impact on all parts of industry. And there's a part for everyone to take part. And although it seems as though a lot of work's been done in the last 15 years, any young people coming into this field today will still Still be considered pioneers. So um, follow the data, follow your patient's needs, and uh, you can't go wrong.
0: Great, great, great. Ben, would you like to add uh, anything? Would you like to tell us a little bit about where people can find you? What... uh, uh how, how could we sign up for your for you know to know what you're doing and all yeah that?
1: well i mean you could go to uh, awakenlifesciences.com is our website um and that sort of sets out our research plans with mdma over the coming years um you know our, our plans are to see mdma licensed as a treatment for alcohol use disorder in the next few years so it's not going to be far behind ptsd um right. you know there, there's especially post covid there's there's a massive increase in drinking and a, a a huge um epidemic of alcohol use disorder which is coming our way um, we need safe and effective treatments. And so, um, yeah, have a look at our website, follow our research. In terms of signing up as a research participant, we're, we're looking for 120 research participants for, with AUD over the next few years. So in, in the UK, there'll be lots of opportunities. In the UK, in Bristol and other places? Yeah, so we're as I said, we're opening 15 to 20 clinics throughout the UK. Our Bristol clinic is about to open and we have clinics in Manchester and London opening by Christmas and okay. then uh, many other cities in the next couple of years
0: great anything else ben or should i let you go to your busy life yeah i'm, I'm all done thank you but thanks very much for giving me this opportunity I, man i really appreciate you being here that was that was a great great information great information i'm sure cool. everybody will enjoy this
1: yeah and do let me know of the link when it when it's out so
0: i can put I, that onto social media i definitely will thank cool. you so much ben okay you take care